Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third season of the Bunby Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. I am excited to kick things off with a new season theme titled, Where Do We Stand? And what better person than to kick things off than my friend, Annie Tan. Annie is a fearless activist, storyteller, writer, and currently a special education teacher in the New York City Chinatown District. She previously lived in Chicago, being active with the Chicago's Teachers Union, and now doing the same in New York City, especially during the times of the pandemic. She speaks about the challenges of what being a teacher is like during the pandemic and the traumas that her students and their parents are facing during this crisis. She also is a distant cousin of Vincent Chin. For those who don't know who he is, in Detroit in 1982, Vincent Chin was celebrating his bachelor party with his friends until a group of white men approached him and accused him of being Japanese. They brutally attacked Vincent and a few days later, he would die of his injuries. During that time, the Japanese auto companies started taking over the auto industry. This would lead to the decline of the American auto industry in Detroit. And consequently, the white men lost their jobs as a result. The men charged with his murder never spent a day in jail and only had to pay a $3,000 fine as a result. This would galvanize the Asian American community and civil rights leaders across the U.S. together to fight for his justice, but also to fight against the anti-Asian racism. Annie speaks about her family's experience with Vincent's murder, but also how it ties into COVID-19 and the struggle to build Asian and Black solidarity against white supremacy. You won't want to miss this episode. Also, special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnamerican-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or follow them on Facebook or on their Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle. Hi, everyone. So I am here today with my good friend, Annie Tan. So Annie, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing today, Randy? I'm I'm doing wonderful. It is unbelievably hot right now. It's been hot since forever in July. So I don't know. How is it over in New York? Actually, I just went for a walk. Uh, We went around to the park in Astoria and here in New York City. Um, It is the first like nice, cool day. It's around like low 80s, like upper Uh, 70s right now. So it's perfect. And it's cloudy. So it's not like the sun's in our face right now. Uh, it's been like in the 90s for the past two weeks and it's not gonna let up anytime soon so I'm dying and no yeah at least at least it wasn't like the first time we met which we just figured out was at the dyke march in 2016 yeah Yeah, 2016 I remembered because I we officially talked in 2018 I think like where we made that connection but 2016 I remember you wore the hat America was never great and I thought it was amazing (laughs) <laughs> it was so poignant and very unapologetic. And I remember seeing you, you were like in a very unapologetic mood and I was there for it. I thought it was just the right kind of mood, especially for Chicago Dyke March, where it's so intersectional and it's very radical and it fit the mood. That yes. Day. Yes. yes. It was great to see you back then to, to know that we actually went further in our, uh, in our little journey there. So I am so glad that you're here today. Uh, so I wanted to give you a quick introduction of who you are. So 
you are currently a special education teacher in New York City. Uh, prior to that, you have lived in Chicago and have been working with Chicago's Teachers Union. Uh, you have been doing a lot of storytelling uh, in numerous spaces, including the Moth. Uh, you have done a lot of advocacy for teachers, students. You've been doing a lot of advocacy on civil rights issues. And there's also uh, an interesting story that I wanted to share that I was hoping that you would share with us about your cousin, Vincent Chin. So yes, I'm really excited to have you on today. So looking forward to this uh, wonderful conversation. Yeah, I am very excited as well. Yeah, so I want to ask you, so how have you been coping during the COVID-19 crisis and what effect does this virus have on you as an Asian American person? Mm -hmm. So I think I only realized around May that there were all these different intersections of COVID-19 hitting me. First of all, I am born and raised in Chinatown and I'm a Chinese and Asian American woman. So first in January, I already started seeing the local Chinese businesses in Chinatown here in New York City just suffering. You know, a lot of businesses are saying, you know, they had a third of the people, like Noodle Village in Chinatown is one of the most popular joints that I've ever been to. There's always a line outside waiting and this one day in early February, I went with my boyfriend and his family and there was, it was only a third full. And I asked the guy like, how's business been? And he's like, yeah, you see, like, you know, we're always full. Um, and then a month later they had to shut down and they only opened back um, maybe two weeks ago, end of June. So they were really suffering. And then that's, that's one of the most popular spots in Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And then you just see a ripple effect through all the other businesses where no one's going to their restaurants. You see these uh, businesses that would always be full, having almost no people in them. Uh, so I already started seeing that in January. Um, then meanwhile, also hearing from students, you know, they, you know, I teach fifth graders. I'm a special education teacher in Brooklyn, uh, in Sunset Park. So we have a mix of Latinx and Chinese students. And uh, I was on a field trip, actually, I think in sometime in February, where the kids started running around and they started playing this game coronavirus mm. on the playground. And then I pulled one of them over. I was like, hey, that's not okay. What, what are you talking about? And then he goes, well, yeah, I didn't invent the game. We're just playing it, which I found was such like an apt like, um, way that America is going about it. Like, oh, we didn't invent this coronavirus, but we're creating a game around it almost. Um, but as a Chinese and Asian American woman, you know, as a teacher of these students, I'm like, wow, like, how do I talk to these kids about the coronavirus when they already like this was like February, like they already had already had their preconceived notions of what the coronavirus was. Um, and then also having adults all around me in my life saying, Annie, no offense, but I don't want to go to Chinatown right now because, you know, Chinese people brought the coronavirus here, you know? Mm. Um, and then having friends of mine and their relatives being attacked in New York City, uh, merely for looking Chinese or looking Asian, um, has been very scary. So I have a lot of friends who have been directly hit by racism through this. Uh, my friend told me that her dad was actually walking one day in March um, to a bakery and some guy hit his leg with a baton and uh, he, he got hit, he fell, 
And he basically crawled to his bakery and ended up calling the cops, but the guy had long run away. Um, so those are just a few instances of the direct racism that's hit. But the indirect racism that's hit has been to Chinatown and then to just Chinese businesses in general. And then the lingering effects of that because of the blame of the, you know, the loss of economy on the Chinese, there's been signs in places like Bay Ridge here in Brooklyn saying, oh, it's these Chinese 99 cent stores and uh, these Chinese businesses that have been ruining the structure of Bay Ridge for such a long time. And coronavirus is just another part of that. So um, just looking at all these businesses that I'm wanting to protect, but I also know like goes down to cultural and intergenerational and linguistic factors of uh, how these businesses are able to survive. Um, there's, there's just so many intersections right now of how that hits. And that's not even talking about how it's been as a teacher um, necessarily during the coronavirus crisis, which um, has led to all of us distance pandemic remote learning, um, where I have a number of students who have had COVID-19 cases in their families and in my little classroom of 12 students and three paraprofessionals and me, we've had something like 14 deaths within mm. our little classroom. Um, so COVID-19 has hit really, really hard in New York City. Um, around that time was like mid-April um, when all those deaths hit for New York City. And I don't want that happening again. But people are playing like a game like, you know, lives aren't being lost right now. Mm. It's very poignant and sobering to be reminded that we're, we're today is July 7th. So we are about 130,000 deaths. 14 people that your students are connected to within your classroom. I mean, just think about that in that time. And I cannot imagine what goes to a student's mindset as you're doing distant learning. So I'm very curious, when quarantine was happening, uh, when the stay-at-home orders were happening in New York City, what was that whole process like in getting prepared for uh, the distant learning, especially for special education, and knowing that you were working in an urban community where it's Black and Latinx folks, and they lack the resources uh, whether it's internet access, whether it's uh, additional resources, what was that preparation like in the days prior to uh, prior to the stay at home order? So, uh, New York City public school students are majority uh, students of color. Um, about a, a little over seventy percent of those students are Black and Latinx, uh, Black and Brown students, and so when you're actually looking at the makeup of schools, you know that they're serving mostly uh, majority black and brown students. Um, I actually did my undergrad thesis in college. I was an urban studies major in education. Um, and I did a lot of research on how segregation works and not just racial segregation, but income segregation. And they're very much on the same lines. Um, low-income uh, black and brown students make up the majority of our school system, right? Um, and as a former student of the New York City public school system, 
I know that I also was in that uh, free and I'm in a what's called a title one school a free and reduced lunch school where over 90% of the students in my school qualify for free or reduced lunch. Um, so right before everything closed down, the mayor was refusing to close down schools uh, entirely. He was like, no, where will our homeless students go? Where will our students who need temporary housing go? Uh, where will they get food? And we educators are shouting, there are ways to get food to them without making 1.1 million students go into school every day. Right, and there were all these uh, educator and student sickouts. So I think the Friday before school closed, 68% of students uh, weren't in school, or sorry, 68% of students were in school. Um, so 32% weren't going to school because they were scared of the coronavirus outbreak. Um, because we kept seeing uh, increasing cases, there weren't enough COVID testing, just like right now in Arizona and places in the South. Um, as we speak right now on July 7th. Um, and, you know, the DOE, the Department of Education, uh, they were saying, if you have cases in your school, we will close you down for 24 hours, deep clean the school, do contract tracing, and then uh, your school will be closed down. But that actually didn't happen. There were cases throughout New York City in schools where the DOE and the Department of Health knew about cases and then those schools maybe were closed down for a day and then they were reopened the next day. Um, even though teachers had the coronavirus in that school, students had the coronavirus in those schools. Um, so people were very, very scared. Um, and um, there were a number of different things that came up uh, during that process. There were teachers calling for a sick out. There were, uh, my, union, my teacher's union didn't call for a sick out, but they called for a lawsuit against the city and against the state for not closing schools on time. Parents and students were just opting out in general starting from that Friday, right? And um, it took a lot of people's efforts to finally, finally, finally close down schools, but the schools would not have been shut down without the community efforts, I don't think. Um, and that's very scary to think about as a teacher that it took so many people mobilizing to finally close down schools during a pandemic because they would have used any excuse just like they're using right now to reopen schools. They, they don't have a plan. No one has a plan, but Donald Trump just tweeted yesterday's school must reopen in the fall. Um, and we teachers and many parents and students are very scared, even though all of us do want school back in person. Um, so all of that has been very scary, um, especially, so I didn't even go to your question about special education and remote learning. We had no preparation. Um, we were given three days to get every kid on Google Classroom. So my job went from teaching kids to becoming customer service for kids and helping parents and students get their passwords, figure out how to open Google Classroom and class forms uh, to get students who didn't have devices, internet-enabled devices, um, to constantly call and text parents every single day to see how they're checking in. Uh, so it, it was a lot. It was a lot to handle. And it really fell on teachers and parents to do this remote learning right. Um, and that's why, like, at, at, uh, like, right after school ended last week, um, I just slept for like four or five days because I was so tired by the end of it all. Thinking back on 
the first week when you started to have a shuffle and get all these preparations and can you tell me the what the first day or the first week was like as you were trying to maneuver and and figure out last minute arrangements for these students can you give me an example of what that first week was like with your students and 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 the process of how you're teaching them especially with special education uh, especially when you're really trying to find ways to get students to understand uh, the ability to access information and to open up Zoom or uh, being able to monitor and be able to assist them because you couldn't do it through distant learning as you would in a classroom, right? So I'm just very curious to know what that first week was like with your students as the stay at home was underway. Well, first was making sure I could even contact all the parents in the first place. So the majority of my students are Latinx. So I have enough Spanish that I was able to contact the parents and the students, um, but not enough to like, you know, I learned the word for passwords, contraseña, you know, and like, I'd be like, tienes de contraseña, necesita, me, like, you know, I just like, yeah. I would have to translate in my head, then I have to write it, or I have to send an email in Spanish or find someone to help me translate um, for the majority of my students. Then for, so like I think seven of my students out of 12 had uh, computer and internet access, but the other five didn't regularly. So those seven students, it was making sure they knew how to access the classrooms, creating video tutorials everywhere on how to create that while calling those other five students every single day to check in and try to help them do some work over the phone at least, even though they had no papers, they had, we had uh, books sent out to them. So like, at least they had like paper books on hand like that we could refer to. Um, but um, it was like a rush to try to mail students who weren't there that Friday, like their books so that we could teach out of those books and then uh, just constantly like messaging the Department of Ed to see when these devices would come in um, and try to figure out all the parent schedules while also uh, getting all the speech language pathologist providers and the counselors, everyone who supports my students and provides minutes for them, uh, all their services. So being like, Miss Cuervo, here is uh, X, Y, and Z's phone number and email. Here's their contact information. Uh, I know they work during the day, so please call them at night. Uh, this parent, they start work at 10 a.m., so please call them directly in the morning. So figuring out all the parent schedules, all the student schedules, making a schedule uh, for speech and language and counseling, while also trying to figure out how to do live classrooms for the first time. It was a lot. And that basically kept going through the weeks it was it was just it wasn't so much teaching as it was trying to do customer service and getting kids to do their assignments and then finally once all the kids were on the google classroom to get them to actually do their assignments and be like hey you missed june 1st assignment please do june 1st because that will count for your grades meanwhile the district isn't telling us what grading policies we have they canceled our spring break because they said it was, uh, you know, for the safety of the students that uh, they stay and remain at home. Uh, so I also didn't get any break till Memorial Day. 
uh, to just breathe through all this while my Department of Education didn't give any guidance whatsoever on how to teach at all or anything. So it was it was a lot. It 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 felt like I couldn't keep it up. I if if I had to do it right now, I know I wouldn't be able to keep it up right now. Mm. Wow, it's just so mind-boggling. Just I'm just trying to imagine being in your shoes as you're making all these preparations, working with your colleagues, finding transparency. And yeah. and while there's a pandemic. So like I had parents being like, hey, I'm learning about how to use remote learning. But on top of that, we have a pandemic, a global pandemic that's wrecked the economy where parents don't have food and all this stuff. So I have parents saying like, I'm, I'm at home all the time because I got furloughed or uh, my job got cut. I have other parents who really desperately want to go back to work, but uh, you know, then they can't help their kid during the day with their assignments because their kid can't focus or, um, or I have parents who have relatives who are sick from COVID-19 and saying, Miss Tan, like, we're sorry we weren't on yesterday uh, on the Google Classroom. We were checking in on our relative who's in the hospital right now. Um, and then other, other students who had grandfathers pass away, their uncles pass away, their cousins mm -hmm. pass away through all this and not being able to mourn that. Um, I had a kid, you know, I was working with one one-on-one -on -one, and then I was like, hey, what's going on? You, you haven't responded. You seem really unfocused right now. And the student was just like, I miss my grandfather. Mm. And then how do you teach through that? You can't. You, you have to have like so much counseling. You know, every time this happened, this happened multiple times. I, uh, I messaged the counselors each time and the counselors are like, okay, we'll give them a call. Um, and uh, it got to a point once where we gave parents counseling because the parents didn't have anyone. So like, mm. you know, to provide everything that the parents needed while also like, you know, I think the joy of teaching, I'm, I'm starting to write about this a little bit. I haven't quite written it down, but there's like this psychic connection and love that comes from teaching that only happens in person, you know, like kind of like the wink when a kid's got it right or like a keep going kid or, you know, pats on the back or like little parties we have, little celebrations like that we're just not able to have in person anymore because of the remote learning pandemic crisis. Um, but a lot of what I love about teaching was just stripped from all of us, like mm. when the pandemic started. So I think on top of all that, there was that feeling of not feeling like I love the work I do right now. That, that, I think that was a really, really hard part alongside just the anxiety of a school system that did not have any plans together, continues to not have any plans together and put everything on the teachers and the families to figure out. Um, that was just a huge burden to carry. Mm. I was going to ask you, and I think you were just uh, going along in that direction, but you know, like every teachers that I've uh, known throughout my life, there's a special bond that they have with their own students. Now, prior to the pandemic, uh, those fifth graders that you were teaching, there is, a, there is that kind of relationship that you were already building in. But throughout that school year, during the pandemic, I'm very curious to know how that has changed uh, from the time 
that you had taught them the first day of school and then through the pandemic and at the end of school year. So I'm very curious to know how that relationship with your students have evolved and what has that taught you going into this upcoming fall school year of how are you going to figure out better ways to be uh, to be better accessible to your students, but also maintaining your own boundaries and trying to figure out what are helpful ways to not only uh, benefit the students, but also for the parents who are really struggling with this. And, and a lot of the people that you were, a lot of the students that you were teaching, their parents are essential workers. They have to be out on the front line, whether they're in hospitals, whether they have to be in fast food services, grocery stores and whatnot. So I'm just very curious to know how your relationship with your students have evolved during that time of the pandemic and what has that uh, prepared you for, for this upcoming school year? I think the strongest thing about me as a teacher is the relationship building. And I would say that each and every one of my students in my class knew I cared about them and wanted the best for them. Um, and that would play out in the classroom dynamic uh, as we built relationships with each other and also with students in hand. So I think a lot of the practice of becoming a better human is with other humans. So when I started this, I, um, I didn't want live instruction to be academic because I knew my students needed time to just be with each other. And so um, I did live instruction in quotes uh, twice a week just so the kids could talk to each other because the only people they were talking to were the people in their households so you know it was you know just them making jokes with each other like having like a little chat room even like of just like emojis that they were sending off to each other um the relational piece i think is really important for kids to grow and learn i you know people keep talking about this learning loss um, everyone is delayed right now. That's just a given, but like, you know, as long as kids like have that sense of belonging and relationship and community, uh, I'm hoping they'll be able to pick up, you know, a lot of the things they weren't able to during this remote learning. But, you know, I, I mentioned that because people are saying that the learning loss and all this, um, is a huge cost of, us not being back in person in schools. And they're using that as an excuse right now to reopen mm. schools. And I don't think that's fair. Like, especially if, you know, I've seen a lot of my colleagues in other schools tell me that there are teachers and staff in their schools who have died. And to have a student who has a teacher who has died from coronavirus, I think that's far more painful and, you know, scary than being remote learning right now everyone's a, everyone's delayed right now there is no doubt about that um but i think we really have to consider what we're prioritizing right now um and it, it just seems like we're prioritizing the economy and money and property over human lives right now mm -hmm. and that's not my philosophy as a teacher whatsoever it was i think it was really hard to really foster that um because in my classroom during remote learning, because oftentimes I would just talk, be talking to a student alone, you know, and a student has a deferential relationship oftentimes to their teacher. And so as much as I tried to get them out of their shell and talk to them, they just wouldn't 
come out of their shell the same way they would with a student, mm-hmm. you know, if they had students in the lunchroom or the playground. Hence why I tried to do live kind of almost play sessions uh, for my students because I knew the academics wouldn't come if they weren't social emotionally healthy. And if they didn't have other people to talk to, you know, a number of my students brought up in our classroom sessions that their relative had died or um, something had happened at home. So I, I felt like they more needed that sounding board before they were able to go on to anything academic. Um, so we just really have to consider that right now, what is developmentally appropriate for students um, and what makes sense during a pandemic. And I honestly don't think going back to school when we have no plans and when cases are rising up, we have like 80,000 cases a day here in America right now, as of July 7th. Um, I don't think we should be going back and reopening anytime soon if we're at that level. Mm. That's also very plain because you're still in phase two in New York, is that correct? I believe we started phase three two days ago. So, oh, but, okay. but indoor dining has not resumed because mm. they, you know, uh, I think our mayor and governor said that there were too many cases across the country and they didn't want to risk anything. Yeah, I know we just got into phase four about a week or so ago, and it's still nerve-wracking because Illinois has cut down on or reduced the number of cases, but because we're not going to case or phase four, we're starting to show that increase, and then there's also that possibility that school will be back in session for fall, which is quite alarming, as you just mentioned. And uh, Anna, you wrote something on Medium. You wrote a piece on Medium, uh, I, I gotta say, at least a month or two ago, and I uh, remember New Republic. Sh- New Republic, uh, my mistake. So when you shared your piece on New Republic about the issues that you had as a teacher and and what you just shared just right now uh, involving your students, a lot of teachers that uh, read this piece were very moved. You literally told their story. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not just a New York issue. This is a nationwide issue that we're having. and. These are very important stories to document because the virus has killed a lot of the students, teachers, faculty members as well, and also has really traumatized this generation of students who have lost their childhood, a piece of their childhood uh, to the virus. I mean, yeah, we can talk about not having graduation parties or our birthday parties, but we're also talking loss of life here and mm-hmm. loss of innocence. So I wanted to ask you, like, what advice would you give to fellow teachers and also to, um, to parents who are still trying to figure out how to navigate this? And what can we do as allies to be more, uh, to be more outspoken, to push our legislators to uh, support teachers in this work? Mm -hmm. I think everything that's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement right now is directly tied to the amount of community support that we're having. Um, If you look at everything related to fights around getting mental health funding, getting funding for immigrants, getting funding for healthcare, getting funding for education, you see all these realms have all been populated by people who are able to lobby Congress and politicians. And it's not the people on the ground who are doing this work who are the ones lobbying and having influence. So teachers do not have educational policy decision-making power or input at all. 
in all this. You know, I, I looked at Andrew Cuomo's reopening schools board in April, and not one of them was an educator. You know, and uh, you look at Mayor de Blasio's here in New York City, and only one was an educator. There were a few from educational organizations, but like one working educator who knew what was happening on the ground. Um, but I think the Black Lives Matter movement is essential, right? It's, the Black Lives Matter movement, if you actually look at the 13 principles of Black Lives Matter, are not just pushing for um, less murders by police officers. They're talking about queer affirming communities. They're talking about Black-led communities. They're talking about intergenerational principles. They're talking about things that our whole society needs in order to function um, without police brutality, right? Um, so going back to your question, you know, what is actually like really needed? Um, I think a lot of people have these frustrations uh, because they don't feel heard um, and that there's no real avenue for them to be heard. Voter suppression is happening like nationwide and is oftentimes the one thing people are told to do to go vote. Um, but there's actually way more you can do on the community level, um, such as these calls to defund police, which actually means to go now actually invest that money into schools, into the community, into counselors, not cops. Um, there's so much that we need to fight for. Schools are one part of it. And the New York Times even called for New York City schools to stay open a few days before schools closed because they knew the need of schools. They knew that people go there for food. They knew people go there for shelter. They knew people go there for way more than just an education. And the New York Times, the editorial board was like, if you close schools, you will shut down these social services for these students and families. But why were schools the only place for those social services in the first place? Why weren't there backup services? You know, and I think the coronavirus crisis has taught us that we are as strong as the weakest person. If that weakest person without a mask uh, has immunocompromised issues, if that person possibly spreads this coronavirus to other people, there, you can have all the masks, you can all have all the things you want, but that person can spread it. You know, it's a community effort. I think um, I was really hopeful in the beginning of this pandemic that we as an American society might learn collectivism, right? That we're doing something for the better good of the community and our individual wants of going to, uh, you know, a bar or a restaurant or a hair salon uh, actually should not be above the community safety um, of our neighborhood. So unfortunately, I was wrong. I think New York City, the only reason New York City has kept its cases down right now is because we've lost 17,000 people, over 17,000 people. That's almost one in 400 New York City residents that have been lost to the coronavirus. We have seen that loss of life. And the reason for that is because there aren't the social safety nets that allow people to not work. Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo knew that. And because there, weren't, there wasn't a social safety net, they kept open uh, schools much longer than, say, Broadway musicals. Be, like, they stayed open past the NBA. 
And because of that, and the research shows, according to the New York Times, Tom Frieden, um, that had schools been closed a week or two earlier and stores and businesses been closed, we may have saved 50 to 80% of the people who were lost to the coronavirus here in New York City. So you just, we just really have to think it's a community effort right now. We're not just fighting for our individual freedoms. We have to fight to literally stay alive as a community right now mm -hmm. and also to provide mutual aid, which is how a lot of parents and families and communities have been surviving right now. South Brooklyn Mutual Aid has been providing food for families. Uh, the Black Feminist Project in the Bronx has been providing uh, food for families up in the Bronx. And then uh, if you look here in Chinatown, there are groups providing uh, interest-free loans to small businesses that otherwise wouldn't have gotten those loans. Whereas Kanye West, who has a billion plus in like his wealth, he qualified for a PPP, PPP grant or something just the other day, which is asinine to me. Um, so it's, it's a much larger goal of abolition, right? Police free schools that a lot of people are fighting for and putting that money back into the communities because as I went to, on, I went to a rally on Friday um, and the chant goes, we keep us safe. We have to figure out ways to keep us safe. Um, mm. And that's really what the coronavirus pandemic has shown all of us, I hope. Um, but I, I'm very cynical as well because I just see these rising caseloads throughout the country and I don't want those places to end up like New York City. It kind of reminds me of how the U.S. reacts to mass shooters and this, the ongoing struggle for gun control in this country. Because when there's mass shootings, what do we do as a, as a country? We can fight for a few days, but Congress hasn't done anything to pass uh, gun legislation. I mean, we look at uh, 2012 with the Sandy Hook massacre as like the, the creme de la creme of, I don't want to make light of it, but of like the pinnacle of what should be the pinnacle of our outrage. And yet we still have there's Pulse, And then there's Parkland. Yes. And then it's just. So it's kind of, so it's kind of like the way with how we react to the COVID-19 crisis as the way we do with uh, gun shootings. And we are content to still let it happen and let it be normalized. And, and I find that, it so disturbing. It's not that we're we're comfortable with it. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think it's more we have been desensitized to it. I think, for example, when I saw the video of George Floyd, it to me just was like, oh man, like I have been to Black Lives Matter protests after protests in the past. I've gone like, you know, to, you know, like when uh, in 2015 or 16, when Mal Malcolm London was in jail and like we were going to like try to free him from prison and like there, there was all these like different movements like you know participating with the Chicago Teachers Union and Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter rallies and then having Blue Lives Matter people and also our own teachers who are uh, who are more friendly to cops be like I don't agree with you um, it just felt like for me at least like nothing was enough like the articles I write the the conversations I'm having like it, it just for me when I watched that George Floyd video it felt like 
I could do all these things and it still doesn't matter. I think I just, I just was really tired. And then all of a sudden this mass protest movement happened. And I was like, what's different this time? What, what made this different than all the other times where other people were shot and killed? You know, why, why weren't we moving up as a country? Why, why do all of a sudden my friends want to buy Black Lives Matter shirts when I have like six or seven of them in my closet? Right. Where were you then? Why weren't you around then? Um, and this is not me saying that I am a perfect person. I am not. I still have anti-Blackness in me. I was raised under white supremacy. I was raised by white middle-class teachers who believe in middle-class values and meritocracy and didn't teach us systemic racism. Um, and there are so many things I'm still doing wrong all the time and that I'm being called out for all the time. But I'm also willing to be called out as well and be like, no, I'm wrong. I'm sorry I'm wrong. Like, I'm going to read more. I'm not going to use your black labor or your POC labor to learn the things I should have known already. Um, and I'm, you know, so going back to what I was saying, you know, with like the gun shootings that you were talking about, I think so many Americans feel desensitized because they have felt powerless for so damn long. And people don't know where their power lies. And, you know, I, um, you know, you mentioned in the introduction that I am related to a man named Vincent Chin. Um, Vincent Chin, I found out, was my cousin. Uh, he was beaten to death in 1982 by two white auto workers who blamed him, who they thought uh, was Japanese during the auto workers crisis of the 80s, where a lot of uh, Americans lost their jobs. And they beat him to death with a baseball bat a week before his wedding day at his bachelor party. And his wedding guests, my family members, went to his funeral instead. And uh, the way I got radicalized as a kid was because I saw photos and videos of people rallying for my cousin. I saw racial justice coalitions. I saw Jesse Jackson speaking up for my cousin. Um, and then I saw my uh, great auntie, Lily Chin. Uh, she is my grandmother's sister. And she went all around the nation and spoke up and she said something. You know, just like Michael Brown's mother spoke up, just like Philando Castile's mother speaks up, right? And I realized, right, it, it's a story that matters. It's, it's not just the trauma of Vincent's death that matters. It's the fierceness that Vincent lived in, his joyfulness, his mischievousness, his seek, seeking to become a family man to support his mother, Lily Chin, to like start a family, you know, all these things mattered and still matter. And that life was lost in a moment of ignorance and hate. And my great auntie Lily Chin marched and went all around the country and became the symbol for my cousin when no one else would, right? No one would know Vincent Chin's name without my great auntie going around the nation. And then it was all these activists around her. You know, I spoke with Helen Zia. I was filmed for the recent PBS documentary, Asian Americans. And I got to spend a whole day with Helen Zia, um, which She's is great. amazing. It was amazing. I'm so, I'm so grateful to Helen for everything. 
Um, and she told me, she said, you know, had, you know, so Helen Zia told me that they got all the Asian American lawyers from all over Michigan. Some of them were like real estate, some, you know, they were all in different fields. They weren't in civil rights law or anything. And she got them all in a room uh, or they all came together in a room and they were like, who's willing to fight for Vincent Chin? And no one raised their hands. And Lily Chin just spoke up. She was like, I will, I will fight. Mm -hmm. And that got everyone else in the room willing to fight. And that act of courage from my great auntie and her continued acts of courage led to a Pan-Asian American movement that many of my friends and activists today re remember and realize they remember the moment they heard my cousin Vincent Chin's name and the, his story. And from that, you know, the reason why it was so powerful, his story was because at that time in the country, most Asian Americans identify strictly with their ethnicity, you know, Cambodian, Chinese, Japanese, Korean. But then they saw Vincent Chin's death and murder and realized these guys killed him because they thought he was Japanese when he was Chinese, which meant they didn't care what we were. You know, even now you see like uh, these t-shirts online saying, I'm Korean, I'm not Chinese, you know, because of right. the coronavirus stuff. Right. But it doesn't matter. They don't care who we are. They just care what we look like. And they will kill us anyway. And that's why Black people are being killed, because of what they look like and what that perception is of what Black lives are. Black lives don't matter to those people who kill them. You know? So when I think back to what power looks like, it's the community. It's us all standing together being in hundreds and thousands and continuing to push and while my great auntie Lily Chin never got justice you know court case after court case trial after trial we finally lost the case my family that still didn't remove the power that those Asian American activists had um, to this day um, where so many Asian Americans are like I will not stand for this injustice anymore um, where so many people went into law school because of Vincent Chin's case, um, and where so many organizations, including uh, a group I work with, CAV, here in New York City, Coalition Against Anti-Asian Violence, so many Asian American organizations were born out of the Vincent Chin case. So I just remember, right, like, people are desensitized because they feel like nothing will happen. And that's exactly how I felt during George Floyd uh, when that was happening. And I realized I'm mis I was mistaken. And I was mistaken because I'm also Asian American and I have a level of privilege where I could be mistaken and this doesn't cost me my life as an Asian American. And that's a really important point we Asian Americans have to grapple with. We can look at the Black Lives Matter movement and feel some sense of removal because we know those police officers aren't going to be looking at us in the same way as they are black lives. I can walk past a police officer and not tense up and hesitate. I just can, you know, as an Asian American woman and a light skinned East Asian woman, I know I have that privilege, but I also realize their liberations bound up in mine because I know that I feel guilty and shame for knowing that fact, 
You know, there is an Amy Cooper in me knowing that if I call, you know, and uh, the cops on an African-American man, that man will have harm and violence done to that person, you know? So that's why, like, I, I really want the Asian American community to really think about what it means to have Black Lives Matter and then what that means for us ourselves and what we have to unlearn and what privileges do we have to give up in order to actually stand with Black Lives Matter. Um, as I said earlier, I'm not a perfect ally, right? Mm -hmm. But I also have to unlearn all the stuff that I have been taught and all the things that I know is true in society right now to make I'm it also, different. I'm also very curious about your own family's relationship and talking about Vincent Chen, but also how your family feels about you being outspoken, being into activism, and also with the conversation on anti-blackness, Black Lives Matter movement with your family, because since the George Floyd, there's been another, and especially considering that Officer Tao was an accessory to the murder of Mr. Floyd, that there is more pressure, it's, it seems, to have these conversations with our community members to confront something that our community has had long struggle with when it comes to uh, anti-blackness, colorism, xenophobia, uh, model minority myth issues. So I, I'm very curious to know what your family's relationship in talking about Vincent Chin and your activism, but also uh, in having these discussions that lead into uh, Black, Lives, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. So I actually found out about Vincent Chin not through my family, but through a PBS documentary. So like at 13, I was like that nosy kid. I spoke about this on the Moth Radio Hour, actually. So if you look up my name, Annie Tan and the Moth, you can actually listen to the story of my journey toward finding it's out about It's an amazing story. Vincent. I highly you. recommend it, yes. Thank you, I appreciate it. Um, and I happened to be watching this documentary called Becoming American, The Chinese Experience, which is perfect for me. And uh, the last 20 minutes of the show, uh, the Vincent Chin case, and my mom walks by and she like points to the photo on the screen and goes, Go go hai lei piu ka. In uh, Cantonese, that means that's your older male cousin. Um, and I, I start to ask my mom questions and then she just stops. She, she doesn't answer any questions because I realize the Vincent Chin case hurts for my family. And I realized over the next 10, 15 years or so that everyone in my family thinks we lost the case, which we did. You know, um, we never got justice for Vincent. Um, and the guys who are uh, his murderers are alive today and paid $3,000 to the jail system for my cousin's life. Um, and I think... For my family, it was just another example of how the criminal justice system in America fails and how American society is broken. Um, so to my family, unfortunately, that's the lesson they took. It was then it became more of an inward speaking, like just stick to yourself. Don't be too out there. You're going to get killed if you do too much. So that's the lesson I think a lot of my family members took from the Vincent Chin case. I also think a, a lot of the younger generation in my family didn't know about Vincent Chin. Um, so 
as I started, you know, doing my activism around teachers union organizing, around tenant organizing, um, I just realized, right, the story is still powerful um, to a lot of people um, and people who were alive then. I wasn't alive when Vincent was killed. Um, my family actually moved to America after Vincent was killed. And uh, my family's story is all tied up in the fact that Lily Chin was all by herself in Detroit after Vincent was killed um, and how some branches of my family ended up moving to Michigan and Detroit and then other sides uh, moved to Arizona and California and Texas and New York and Illinois. Um, so uh, a lot of our family history is tied up on just how, uh, how this case affected my family, but also the ways in which you can actually, as an Asian American diaspora, find a job in America. Uh, but going back to just having conversations with family, my mom has only mentioned the Vincent Chin case, I think twice or three times in my life. So one time being, you know, my brother wanted to go out to have a drink with some friends at the bar. And my mom was like, don't go out so late. You're going to get killed just like your cousin was, mm. you know? So that's just haunting to just be like, right. That's the lesson my family got from this case. Whereas the lesson I got was my great auntie spoke up and she made this Asian American movement happen. But I also don't know if my family sees the fruits of that Asian American movement and know that there are so many organizations and lawyers and power really that the Asian American community has today because of the Vincent Chin case. Were they supportive of Lily like during the movement out of curiosity? From my understanding, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they I think my family understood this was something that Lily had to do. But this was of course before we lost the case. You know, I think, you know, I heard that, you know, prior to the prosecution of the two killers, everyone thought this was an open and shut case that, you know, my family was like, yeah, these guys will serve their time in jail. It's very clear these two beat them. There were like 70 to 100 witnesses who were there apparently. So it is going to be an open and shut case. And that didn't happen because there's a judge who had anti-Asian sentiments from his time being a prisoner of war during the Korean War. And then there's the police officers who had to be pulled into interview. And there were um, people who didn't fit in uh, the respectability politics of witnesses. Like there was a stripper in that strip club who tried to be a witness. There, there's all these other things. And then there's also the respectability of Vincent Chin on the line because he was at a strip club when uh, he was chased down, beaten to death. So there were all these other people being like, oh, I don't know if I want to support this case because he was at a strip club. How respectable is this man? Just like people are saying George Floyd was a criminal. Why should we support uh, him getting justice if he were a criminal? And it's the same thing over and over again in this criminal justice system, which is broken. Mm. Um, so going back to your question about talking with my parents about anti-blackness, um, you know, I think some, you know, I think a lot of families do say, you know, they say anecdotes of other black people who, uh, who did wrong by the Chinese community, like that there's, 
been Chinese and black violence, right? And Asian and black violence. Um, and that's systemic. That was created because the Asian people who were brought to America in the first place were uh, of who had, they had certain class privileges and educational privileges. Um, they were literally picked to come to America, right? And they were university students, university professors, engineers. Uh, again, a very big respectability politics were in play here in the height of the civil rights movement. So um, my friend uh, actually wrote in like the Museum of Chinese in America exhibit here in New York City that the model minority myth and the idea that these Asian Americans are just so successful, so why can't black and brown people here be successful? That was a direct affront to the civil rights movement and a direct attack on the idea that everyone should have equality and freedoms. Um, so we've been used as a wedge against other black and brown people. It's no wonder that there is a tension because we have not managed to break away from that um, and be our own people of our own agency and pull away from this idea that we have to be doctors, lawyers, whatever in our lives and not fight back and don't rock the boat. We have to actually fight our way out of that narrative and decide if we want those things. Like I am a teacher today, but I am also an activist and an organizer and a writer and a storyteller and a singer and a ukulele player and all these multitudes I am that the model minority myth does not allow Asian Americans to be today. Um, so I think a lot of our anti-blackness merely comes from our lack of imagination and our inability to imagine what's possible out there and that we contain multitudes as people. And if we actually had that power and agency and access to resources as we should, that we would be able to imagine a world outside of anti-blackness, outside of white supremacy. And that's something I'm really trying to grapple my head around as I'm writing more about joy and liberation as an Asian American and what that means for me and what that means for my community right now. It really takes effort and um, commitment to really stand with Black Lives Matter, but also to stand for our own freedom. But we can't have our own freedom if people are in the mass incarceration uh, criminal justice system. Read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And that, that has changed many people's lives. Um, and steered them toward the fight toward justice. Um, I, you know, people are like making these anti-racist reading lists right now. I actually think the New Jim Crow is necessary, um, necessary, necessary reading in order to understand how we've gotten to the point we've gotten to today. So several years ago, um, there was a movement that was started by Chinese Americans, and that was in reaction to Officer Peter Lang. Uh, Officer Peter Lang was charged with the murder of Akay Gurley, who is a 27-year-old black man. And that actually would lead to a large-scale protest by the Chinese American uh, folks in New York City. That was actually like the largest mass movement since Vincent Chen's murder. And during that movement, uh, there were folks that were 
using Vincent Chen's name to support the uh, support of Officer Lang. And for many folks in that community, they, there were folks that felt that Officer Lang was used as a scapegoat. Uh, that was that he was seen as not treated equally as other white officers who have murdered black uh, civilians. So I'm very curious to know what is your reaction to this? I know you had written uh, a piece that reacted towards uh, Vincent Chen's name being co-opted in the Peter Lang movement, but I was wondering in this case, what has been your reaction to this particular movement? Mm -hmm. So I think there are two things at play there. One is that there's a sense that Asian Americans feel invisible, that we are never in media, that our struggles aren't presented, our cultural, linguistic heritages aren't represented. Um, and of course, when you're not included in the society and you don't feel like you're fully in it, there's always going to be that resentment and there's always going to be that feeling of powerlessness that you feel. And I think in the Peter Liang case, um, I sensed a lot of those sentiments that people felt that we weren't being heard, that, uh, that Officer Peter Liang who, by the way, went to my elementary school and middle school. Chinatown is very small in New York wow. City. Yeah, he was actually a classmate of my brother's in elementary school. It's a very small Chinatown. Um, so when you have a community of people who doesn't see itself represented, and then the only representation you see in the news is this cop, Peter Liang, who just got found guilty for killing a black man accidentally in a stairwell of a pink house building in Brooklyn, right? A public housing project. You know, there's going to be anger when there's also not education about why those police officers were in that stairwell in that building in the first place around. And also there's not uh, much education on uh, just what system systemic uh, mass incarceration and the criminal justice system look like in America. I think, you know, as I spoke earlier, a lot of people just assumed during the Vincent Chin case that it was going to be an open and shut case. Uh, these two were seen murdering Vincent Chin. They admitted as much, and yet they only paid $3,000 and got probation because the white judge who was a POW said, these aren't the kind of men you sent to jail. Uh, so I had a clear understanding that the criminal justice system is broken, that there are things that are targeting people of color, including Peter Liang. So I think I did see that Peter Liang was the first cop in over a decade to be prosecuted for an on-duty shooting in the NYPD. That's a big deal. But why wasn't the guy who killed Eric Garner also prosecuted? Why weren't other these other cops in the NYPD, including... Uh, the killers of Amadou Diallo, right? So there's all these things. That, and then, so I think part of it was miseducation. Part of it was this feeling and angst that the Asian American community has around being invisible. And then thirdly, these rumors that spread like wildfire over WeChat and social media about what exactly happened in the Peter Leanne case. I actually talked to some relatives about it later 
and they didn't know some of the details of the case. You know, they didn't. And, and once I explained them, they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, that is manslaughter, you know? Uh, but it also comes, as I said earlier, because we don't have relationships with the black community. We just don't, like a lot of us. We don't have relationships with the black community, whether it's because of segregation. If you just look at the article mapping segregation from the New York Times in 2015, you can see that New York City is one of the most segregated cities in America and has the most segregated education system in America. No wonder I, in my elementary school, where also Peter Liang went to elementary school, I had 96% Asian American kids in there. Middle school, I had one black friend. It was high school where I went to a magnet high school uh, where I had to take a test to get in where I met more black people because New York City's really segregated. How can I actually learn about black experiences if I don't have a single black teacher till high school, if I don't have friends who are black, you know? Uh, that's why the Black Lives Matter schools movement is calling for ethnic studies and black curriculum, is calling for more counselors uh, and black counselors, is calling for more black teachers, um, and it's calling for solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, of course. Um, so there, there's all these interlocking pieces, but I ended up writing this piece on Medium, which ended up on the Huffington Post with all those things in mind, um, saying that Vincent Chin should actually be more tied to Akai Gurley, who was killed in a stairwell in his apartment building, than Peter Liang, who's alive to speak today. Um, because both of them, in my opinion, were killed because they were people of color. Peter Liang wouldn't have been doing a stairwell patrol, which was illegal, by the way, at the time, if they weren't in a public housing project that was primarily uh, black residential spaces, you know? So um, there's just so many nuances that um, really still need to be teased out today. I was just, um, I spoke that I was at a rally on Friday. That rally was actually a counter protest against uh, Asians in Flushing who had uh, made an all lives and police lives matter rally on Friday in Flushing. Um, and they outnumbered us, uh, but we think they were paid protesters because all of a sudden, almost all of them left locked up at like 1130 after half an hour of protesting. Um, and their signs were in the garbage. Like I saw a support NYPD sign in the garbage. Um, whereas us, you know, they were yelling at us and we were yelling back on bullhorns and mics. We were yelling, which is Mandarin for I love you. We don't love the police though, you know. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's about then bringing our people. And I, I wrote that article actually when in 2016 around the Peter Liang and Akai Gurley case out of anger and also believing that if I wrote it in English that I wouldn't have to confront my elders who don't speak English about it. And then, of course, it got translated into Chinese in the World Journal. And then my parents and my relatives got on my case about it. Um, and then I really did have to have conversation with them. But I think there was an internal dialogue that I was having within myself. Oh, if I talk to my parents about this, they won't understand. They won't understand Black Lives Matter. So I might as well just not talk to them about it. So I wrote that article in English without consulting anyone, including my relatives who did not like that I brought in Vincent Chin's name 
into the Black Lives Matter movement, even though it was invoked by someone else. Um, and that's when I realized I had to go home to New York. I was living in Chicago at the time where I met you, actually. Um, and I realized I need to change this internal dialogue and oppression I have around not being able to talk to my own relatives. How can I be the organizer and activist I want to be and tell my students to fight racism and classism and sexism when I'm not doing that in my own community and I'm not doing that with my own parents? And that's another thing we have to face internally. What's stopping us from confronting our community about this? And that's an answer you only have. And for me, it was inner shame that I lost my Chinese, like language. It was inner shame that, you know, I had become too Western for my family, that I had distanced myself, that I had a college education and they didn't, that um, I was ashamed of the paint falling off my walls that possibly had led in them. I was ashamed of the cockroach and mice infested apartment that I grew up in and I still occupy today. There was all the shame that I had around my community and going back to my community around what Black Lives Matter means and what other things mean. I wasn't willing to confront them. I was willing to put my name in the Huffington Post rather than talk to my family about it. Um, I get that too. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel that the same way. Sometimes I'm so guarded with my own family members. And uh, a few years ago, I did a storytelling piece uh, writing about my parent, about confronting my relatives under racism, but still having the, the issues, the barriers to have these conversations with my cousins, but also the fact that I had to disown some of my family members after they were vocal in their support for Trump. But by disowning them, I lost the opportunity to talk to their kids who were teenagers at the time. And I thought to myself every day, I'm like, there's got to be a way for me to break that barrier and see if I can get through them or at least make another attempt with my relatives to really understand in their own knowledge of their own understanding of why this is a problem. And like for myself, I have the privilege of being educated. I have the privilege of being in diverse communities the past several years. Uh, and there are things that I had to learn because I grew up in white land suburbia for a good part of my life. And it wasn't until I came back from Korea that I lived in Chicago that I started to understand or just at the beginning of understanding racial relationships, the dynamics in our communities. But I, I think that a lot of our community members like you and myself struggle with having these conversations with our own families, but we're brave enough to talk about it in social media or be in front of a news reporter or what have you. So I think that's a very important test to us right now in the movement. And which also brings me how hopeful do you feel about the Asian American movements in light of COVID-19 and also with the Black Lives Matter movement? Do you see more hope that people in our community members are starting to have these hard conversations now that have been put off to the side? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I first would refer to the intergenerational principle of Black Lives Matter, which states that everyone has the capacity to grow and change. And so I think as I read that to myself, I was like, what do I need to do to make that true? You know, 
that everyone, including my students, including my elders, including me, has the capacity to change and grow. And that requires me believing in the elders, and it requires me believing in my students. And it's amazing the shift that happens when you believe in someone, right? That like they see you as believing in them, and then they they reach the level that you want sometimes. They don't always. But I also think a really useful dynamic uh, came from this book I started to recall, uh, Conflict is Not Abuse by Sarah Schulman, um, where uh, Sarah Schulman just uh, states that conflict is a power struggle. I think us fighting against racism, we're having a power struggle over um, who has power. And I think so often people of color have been pitted against each other in that power struggle. And that's why we have these things. There's these historic things that have happened that have divided our communities. But then abuse is power over. Like, our, like uh, Tiffany So wrote this amazing article about nail salons and how Asian-owned nail salons are targeting Black communities. And what does that mean? Um, is that abusive toward those communities? Uh, do we feel like we have ownership in that way? Um, and those are all really big questions that we have to tackle. But I think going back to what you were saying about your family, about, you know, you feeling like you had to disown your family for voting for Trump. And I'm so sorry that happened. Like, was that because they were being abusive toward you? Did you feel like they were trying to take away your power? Like, what was the reasoning behind that? Or were they struggling with you? to come to understanding. I feel like if it's the latter, there's room to grow. Like I've talked to many Trump supporters actually um, that are in my community. Um, and I do think there are good Trump supporters out there that are mistaken. And it takes a lot of unlearning because they grew up under white supremacy too, um, that want the best for communities, but they're misguided because, you know, I, I went to visit my friend in Bloomington, Illinois, like last year, and they only get Fox News there. They only get Fox News there. So how can you change your mind when that's the only rate, uh, TV station you get? Um, so that is not to say like spend all your time changing people, but it's also a like once you shift that dynamic, like I'm not giving up, but I'm also not spending all that time. I'm not giving up. That does shift the way you think about someone and it does shift the way you're able to be in relationship with that person. Um, and when someone calls me out, you know, you know, someone was about to, someone canceled me a few weeks ago and I said, I'm sorry, I am not a good ally. I hope to regain your trust one day. I'm working with my community to figure this out. Um, I hope you understand that, uh, what's it called? I'm trying my best and I hope to regain your trust one day. Mm. And we actually had a dialogue about this. This is a black ally. Um, and, and the black ally said, you didn't lose my trust, but I'm just really disappointed in something you did that you didn't have my back on something. And I'm like, you're right. And I didn't have your back because I was scared. I had the privilege to be scared. I had the privilege to step away 
And I had the privilege to not sit in a black body and have to deal with this hurt over and over and over again, like you do. And I'm sorry I didn't stand there with you in that hurt. Because I know you have to face that hurt every day. And then something lightened, right? Because I'm like, I know I don't have your trust. I just want you to know, though, that I'm sorry. Mm. And I have to own up to the shit I'm doing wrong. And I have to own my own potential to change and grow, too. It's a lifetime commitment to this work. I mean, there's, it's a lot, it's a lifetime of learning, unlearning, learning again. So it's a cycle that you, we have, I think that the level that we are at, there's no points. There's no uh, gold at the end of the tunnel. I mean, no. really, there's gold at the end of the tunnel. It's freaking liberation. That's yes. the goal, right? That would be <laughs> the ultimate prize of them all. But the truth of the matter is we don't collect gold or collect cash along the way here. This is I mean, I think everyone should get paid for their work. I'm not <laughs> saying that. All people of color should be paid for the, for the lots labor and lots of work and labor they're doing right now, for sure. To, but go on, sorry. Yeah, no, to, uh, to help get people to understand what's at stake. So I, so I, I certainly definitely jive with what you're saying. But I, I look at how this learning is so lifelong. And that, mm-hmm. as I have told some of my friends, you're going to make mistakes along the way and I think what you just mentioned what you beautifully pointed out was just humbling yourself knowing that look I'm not there yet I'm still learning and then I'm going to get better but just owning up to the fact that there's harm that you created even though it was not intent uh that it was not intentional but it had impact on someone else and I think that's something that we always have to consider is intent versus impact, right? And so just... But like, I also uh, think like, you know, there are plenty of people who have good intentions. I think there's a lot of teachers who have good intentions, but then people will play away their impact by being like, but I, I was trying to be good. Um, I, I think there is something to breaking away those two because those are completely tied together in a way that breaking like, the ego makes, yeah like breaking that ego away because if you yeah. are so it's an ego exactly protecting the it's intent about the ego. if you're protecting your own intent you're dismissing the impact that it had on a person because you're mm-hmm. still trying to excuse uh yourself by saying well i didn't mean to because i believed in this and still holding yeah. on to it that's not growing that's not building your relationship with people that mm-hmm. that uh should uh that uh that you're working to have them trust you. So it's still an uneasy education. It's, a, it's, still yeah. a, it's still a very difficult process to learn because there are black community members that do not trust Asian folks. Let's be yeah. very real here because there's been so much harm that's been done in our community, but also that even in our own communities, we're still having our own divisions. There's um, an Asian American experience is not, one monolithic experience, right? There's East Asians that are seen as taking the dominant uh, narrative of the Asian mm-hmm. experience. Including myself. And then there's Southeast Asians, Pacific Islanders that do not consider themselves, well, some of them do not consider themselves Asians because it's a, it's a whole different dynamic. And yes. you're also talking about colonizations from East Asian countries, and then you're talking about South Asians. And so there's so many 
intersectionalities and different uh, historical issues at play here that right. even in our own communities, we are really struggling with this. So even trying to build solidarity with non-Asian communities is already, um, I'm, I think I'm being very nice or a work in progress, but in our own community, we have so much more to unravel and mm -hmm. so much more to unpack and to uh, confront because there's been so much harm that's been done within yes. our own communities that we have yet to reconcile with. And I do think there's like me coming and owning up to that hurt that I did is different from abuse where people are gaslighting. Oh, I didn't do that harm. You're imagining that or no, like you're responsible for all that hurt. Like I didn't do anything wrong or I did it, but I'm not going to own up to it. Um, and that takes power away from people. And that's unacceptable in movement work. That takes away power and air and feel in the movement. And it just really sucks it out. Um, and I don't think that has any place. And we have to unravel why things are abusive, whether it was like an abusive relationship they had uh, themselves or like dynamics they have. But I don't think that's allowed. So like, I, I do think the boundary has to be there. And that's something I only learned a few years ago where I was letting someone else take away all my power and making me believe I was crazy for things that were totally real and happening um, that were belittling me the whole time. And it took me going to an Asian American therapist to really see this person's taking away my power Mm -hmm. And really making this dynamic so that I'm just a small shell of myself. So mm -hmm. th that also has to be reconciled as well. Mm -hmm. And that, that means you have that boundary. You limit your exposure to that toxicity. You create the boundary and say, no, that's not going to affect me. But that, for many people who have been in lifetimes of toxic uh, relationships and community and all that, that can also take a lifetime to unlearn, unfortunately. Mm. And kind of wrapping up here, 2020 has been a very long year. Uh, yes, it has. Very, very nicely here. And we're only but halfway we also, there. Yeah, we still have uh, several months left, and we're also a few months away from the election on top of that. So what have you learned so far about this year that has given you hope? Mm. What have I learned this year? Okay, so... I would recommend everyone listen to the Code Switch podcast called Why Now White People, mm. right? Which is asking the question, why now are we all fighting for George Floyd and for the Black Lives Matter movement? It's not like the Black Lives Matter movement is new. Um, and some white people said, oh, like it was just shameful to ignore uh, the videos any longer. I had time now to watch these videos, all these things. But there's actually a very interesting, uh, an interesting piece at the end by this social psychologist named Nicole Fisher, who said that historically in pandemics like this, there is social unrest like this. So she predicted in March that there would be protests of this nature. She mm -hmm. didn't know what they were, but she knew there were going to be protests based on the history going back centuries of pandemics. And she was right. And while some people are like, wow, these movements, this you know, Black Lives Matter movement, all these people buying up the anti-racist reading list is hopeful. Um, 
I actually think there's a space right now to open it back, but also not let just like the anger and the angst and the frustration and anxiety and change in routines that is the pandemic uh, also be the cause of that. I, I do think that the coronavirus pandemic has been a cause of us all doing these protests now and making this Black Lives Matter movement happen. But I am hopeful that the word abolition is even out there. Um, I didn't think that would word exist. Defund, for the word defund cops was like, wow, people all of a sudden now using that? When I know it's been around for a couple of years, but I think to me hearing that word, the word abolition, I was like, wow, I did not realize that we could actually have that conversation on a mainstream level. And that it could happen right now. But that's right. the thing, it, it could always happen. All of these things could have always happened as long as we pushed for it. But I think as, uh, as like the mayor has like milk toast, like stupid things like, oh, let's just shift the school safety agents from NYPD to the Department of Ed, which actually doesn't reinvest in our community. It just shifts uh, money from one bucket to another, but does the same exact thing and doesn't actually decriminalize the education system for a lot of our students. As people are seeing that- Shifting sand to another beach, basically. Exactly, that's exactly it. They're seeing that the system is not, other systems are not as they thought too. So it's not just Black Lives Matter uh, and creating the community. Like we want the end goal to create communities where we feel safe, which is communities run by us. And that's where the abolition work lies. And that's where I have to do a lot of work as an abolitionist teacher, right? Um, where a lot of my fellow teachers don't believe in that and they really want cops and they think that if there are no cops in schools that the kids are going to attack them and, you know, all these things, uh, which just has an underlying, you know, tells the underlying beliefs of teachers, which is crazy to me. Um, I am hopeful that as these movements continue to shift and we start occupying City Hall and all that stuff, that other institutional layers are unraveling and that we will have room for words more than just abolition in the future. Mm. Um, and I'm hopeful for us to bring joy and liberation to the picture. I actually just told another story for, that ended up on the Moth Radio Hour again. So I have two stories on the Moth Radio Hour around uh, just my disconnect with my dad you know, I, ta I spoke a lot in this interview about the disconnect of my dad. And part of that was because I didn't know his language, his culture, his heritage. But I didn't also see his love language, which is acts of love, acts of service, sorry. That he's like cooking, he's bringing me food, he's cleaning my room, he's doing all these things because he's not a big talker, but he does things. And that was another big reason I ended up moving to New York was because... I realized my dad no longer could communicate over the phone. It just, it just wasn't working as well for him. Um, mm. But that we get to love each other and be joyous with each other um, if we actually make that space possible. Like my mom was able, because I moved home to New York, like my mom saw these lobsters the other day for $6.99 a pound. And she made me some and she brought them to my house. 
uh, yesterday, which was just lovely. Um, but that space wouldn't be there if I hadn't recognized, right, because of our cultural and linguistic divides, I have to be home so I can be here in person to break mm. that divide. Oh, so beautiful. And I got to say, I really enjoyed this conversation. Just hearing you talk about your experience as a teacher and how heartbreaking it is. But also, at the same time, these are conversations or these are experiences that need to be shared to get mm -hmm. a better scope of what the classroom, uh, the classroom environment has been like since the pandemic mm -hmm. and how far behind we are as a society that support that should be supporting its students, its teachers, and parents who yeah, are also, yes. And I'll say teachers, that's why there's been wildcat teacher strikes through the nation over the past few years, <laughs> why the Chicago Teachers Union strike was so influential in 2012. Um, I think teachers are some of the best organizers on the planet because they have community buy-in, they have capacity, they see other people's potential, they can they draw get them young in. people too. Yes. And I'll end with just this quote by this attributed to Colleen Wilcox, that teaching is the greatest act of optimism. Wow. I love it. I love it. And where can people find you? And where can people find your work? Uh, so my work is all uh, on AnnieTan.com. That's again, AnnieTan.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnieTangent. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I know I it's it. my high school nickname. So like I used to go on tangents all the time. Yeah. Um, and now I've honed that in my storytelling abilities. Who knew? You've done great. And I've been so proud of knowing you the past mm. years and, and just really hearing about your amazing work and, and also really diving in, breaking, uh, getting, giving us a sense of what the Asian American movement looks like to you and also what it can look like for all of us here and that we all have a stake in this movement and that we have a stake in supporting Black Lives Matter, supporting undocumented immigrants, supporting uh, LGBTQ plus or disability movements. So this is very important to have and I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for being on the show as my guest. I am so excited and just so honored to have this uh, wonderful conversation with you today. Yeah, thank you, Randy, for having me. This has been so wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on the Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Bunby underscore Chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm -hmm.